they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Barbers on this Friday, April 29, 2022. Um, we're celebrating Easter still. We get to celebrate a season of Easter. We, last week, last week, all week was Easter, Easter Day. It's considered, uh, you, you celebrate for eight days. But we are now in the Easter season, and we celebrate the resurrection. So we want to look at the resurrection and what it means. And appropriately, we'll start today with the Regina Chaley, the prayer that the church prays traditionally um, three times a day, instead of the Angelus, they pray the Regina Chaley. So um, outside of the Easter season, we pray the Regina, the Angelus three times a day. Um, in the morning, at noon, at, at in the evening, 6, 6, 6, 12, and 6. But, and so now we'll pray the Regina Chaley. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice, alleluia. For he whom you merited to bear, alleluia, has risen as he said, alleluia. Pray for us to God. Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Alleluia. For the Lord is truly risen. Alleluia. O God, who by the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, have vouchsafed to make glad the whole world, grant we beseech thee that through the prayers of the Virgin Mary we may merit to share in his resurrection. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we ask the angels to join us here. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Deus Sabaoth. Pleni sunt celi et terra, gloria tua, Hosanna in excelsis. Benedictus qui venit in nomine Domini, Hosanna in excelsis. Well, St. Augustine declared, We are an Easter people. Alleluia is our song. The resurrection. The crucifixion without the resurrection would be a horrible, brutal, torturous thing, wouldn't it? But Christ didn't stay dead. Although he was born to die, although he came to this earth to die, he also came to this earth to live, to, to conquer sin and death and to bring us life and to show us that there is life beyond death, life in union with him. And this is what we strive for. So we're looking at the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. And of course, we have the accounts in all four, in the fourfold gospel, um, there are four accounts of the resurrection, and different details are brought from the different authors. But we want to look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 638 and following, um, and it goes, it goes all the way um, to paragraph 658. But we'll look at some major issues here with the resurrection. Did it really happen? Is this just a myth? Were the apostles expecting this and they believed so much that the Lord was going to arise that they just um, had hallucinations of him being there and appearing to him? Well, it's interesting. So in paragraph 638, it starts out, We bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers this day he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. That's a quote from Acts 13, 32, 33, the Acts of the Apostles. Okay? So they're bringing the good news. God promised to our fathers a Savior and a resurrection, although nobody understood what that meant. 
And now it's being fulfilled. And so the apostles are preaching about it. The resurrection of Jesus is the crowning truth of our faith in Christ, a faith believed and lived as a central truth by the first Christian community, handed on as fundamental by tradition, established by the documents of the New Testament, and preached as an essential part of the Paschal mystery along with the cross. Christ is risen from the dead. Dying, he conquered death. To the dead, he has given life. And that's from the Byzantine liturgy, Troparion of Easter, that Christ rising from the dead gives us the hope that we too will rise from the dead. Okay? So, all right. Did this really happen? Well, the church says the mystery of Christ's resurrection is a real event. It's not a myth. It's not something that was made up. It's not mass hysteria. It's not, oh, we believe this so much that we're able to conjure up visions. No, it's a real event with manifestations that were historically verified as the New Testament bears witness. In about AD 56, St. Paul could already write to the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he goes on and last of all to me as of one born out of the natural course. That's a, that's from first Corinthians 15, three through four. So the apostle speaks here of the living tradition of the resurrection which he had learned after his conversion at the gates of Damascus. And he learned it from our Lord. He said, I myself have handed on to you what the Lord Jesus revealed to me. And um, he said, I preached the gospel that was revealed to me, not by any man. So the apostles believed this, all right? And what, what evidence was there? Well, there was the empty tomb. But is the empty tomb necessarily... Um, Conclusive evidence that our Lord rose from the dead. Well, not necessarily in itself. But what does the church teach us? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Okay, in Luke 24, 5 through 6, remember the women hurried to the tomb early in the morning while it's still dark because the body of Jesus hadn't been properly prepared for burial. It had been hastily prepared. So they're going to anoint his body. Oh, but they believed the resurrection was going to happen and they were waiting for it. So when Jesus rose from the dead, it was just them. Well, wait a minute. Why were the women on Sunday morning running to the tomb to anoint a dead body? And the angel says, why are you looking for one who is living among the dead? So the angel speaks to them. Heaven is witnessing to the fact that, you know what? No, he's not here. Okay. So this is the first element we encounter, this empty tomb. All right, the women find the tomb empty on Sunday morning. And in itself, of course, is not a direct proof of the resurrection. The absence of Christ's body from the tomb could be explained otherwise. There could be lots of explanations. As a matter of fact, look at the gospel itself in, in John 20, 13 and Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Remember, you have the, the, um, the guards who witnessed the angel rolling back the stone and sitting on it go off to tell the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, that, you know, um, an angel came and rolled back the stone and the tomb was empty. 
and they say, okay, here, here's a large sum of money. Um, tell the people that while you were sleeping, while you were sleeping, guards, Roman guards sleeping on duty, that's a, that's a death penalty. While you were sleeping, um, his apostles came in the night and stole his body. Just tell them that, okay? Oh, okay. So that, that could be an explanation, right? Um, interesting thing about the guards. That's the story they spread among the Jews. And in the gospel, it says that's the story that still circulates among the Jews to this day, to the, to the day of the writing of the gospels, right? So, yeah. Are there any problems with that story? Well, let's take a look at what went on. Nonetheless, the empty tomb was still, essential, still an essential sign for all. It's, and it's interesting because the guards at the tomb didn't see Jesus rise. Jesus didn't need to move the stone to rise. He didn't need to, the stone, because now, you know, the resurrected body can move through. Remember when he comes to the apostles the night of the, the resurrection? The doors are locked and he still stands in their midst. The resurrected body has properties that our physical body don't have. And one is that, that walls don't stop you. You can walk through walls, and he could walk through the stone of the tomb. So it was the angel who moved the tomb for the women, moved the stone away from the tomb for the woman. The women, remember, the women were discussing on the way, how are we going to move that stone? It's so big, and and they get there and and they hear this sound like an earthquake, and this, and they see the angel rolling back the stone, and sitting on it and saying, "Why are you looking for someone who's living among the dead?" Hmm, interesting. But its discovery by the disciples was the first step toward recognizing the very fact of the resurrection. The disciples hadn't expected this. They weren't waiting for the resurrection. They hadn't understood. This was the case. First with the holy women and then with Peter. Compare Luke 24, 3, 12, and verses 22 and 23. The disciple whom Jesus loved affirmed that when he entered the tomb and discovered the linen cloths lying there, he saw and believed. Remember John says that in John 20, verse 2, and then 6 and verse 6 and 8. This suggests that he realized from the empty tomb's condition that the absence of Jesus' body could not have been of human doing and that Jesus had not simply returned to earthly life as had been the case with Lazarus. Remember when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead in John eleven forty four, But he was resuscitated. Lazarus was resuscitated. Jesus isn't resuscitated. He's resurrected. He's gone through death. He will never die again. He died once for all. That's the end of it. Never die again. But his body is resurrected. And it's interesting. If the apostles had just stolen the body why would they have left the linen cloth? Why would they have unwrapped the body? Remember, they did, the body was wrapped. Joseph of Arimathea and um, Nicodemus had wrapped the body. And so the linen cloths that had wrapped the body and the face cloth that had been over his face were lying there and, and they'd been left. But the body's gone. Well, if you stole the body, why would you unwrap it and take the naked body away? Interesting. Well, I hear that music. We're coming up against a break. I want to thank all of our listeners, all the little radio stations who pick us up. Um, thank you to all of our donors who support us and all those who volunteer to help us, and especially those who pray for us and offer their sacrifices for us. Don't go away. We will be right back. 
Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, April the 29th, 2022. And um, you just heard the ad from Dr. Sandoval reminding us all about the Marriage and Family Conference that's taking place one week from tomorrow. It'll be here at the Sacred Heart Chapel on May 7th. Please register to come. If you're unable to come for whatever reason, you know, you can you can get it online. So go ahead and sign up so that you can get the recordings of this conference. It will be on marriage and family, and it will just help you to build a better family life. You know, and again, it's not words that help you build a better life. It's your determination to, it's my determination, your determination to conform our life to the truth. So we want to work at changing the things in our lives that need to change in order to make it better. <laughs> so it's not, it's not going to be automatic, right? But but yes, we want to know the truths of the faith. We want to know what the church teaches about marriage and family. And then we want to start applying that and working towards that. So we're talking about the resurrection. And we're talking about the fact that this is a real historical event. Um, and we're, we're going to go on here. Uh, who did he appear? Um, first to Mary Magdalene, right? And the holy women. They, they came, remember, in the early in the morning, they're going to they're gonna anoint his body. And so they're the first messengers of Christ's resurrection. They go back to the apostles to tell them what they saw. And um, it's interesting because next you have um, Peter and then the, the 12. And, cause, and we know that because remember the, the two disciples on the road to Amos? And they're going and Jesus appears to them and he talks to them. And then um, when they come back to Jerusalem, they say, it's true. The Lord is risen. The, the apostles greet him with, it's true. The Lord is risen. He has appeared to Peter. And although that's not recorded in the Gospels, in terms of the, the, the apparitions not recorded in the Gospels, the witness of that apparition is recorded. And then the two disciples who had gone to Amos, because they were leaving, and now they've come back to the church, <laughs> they, they, are, they tell how they saw Jesus and recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Okay, <clears throat> so in that the Lord has risen, he has appeared to Simon. That's Luke 24, 34 and verse 36. So then everything that happened during those Paschal days involves each of the apostles and Peter in particular. In the building of the new era begun on Easter morning, as witness of the, res- of the res- risen one, they remain the foundation stones of his church. Jesus chose his 12 apostles to be the founding of his church. And he chose Peter in particular to be the rock on whom he would build his church and that Peter would have a special place among the other, the other apostles. And, and so the faith of the first community of believers is based on the witness of concrete men known to the Christians and for the most part still living among them. So Peter and the 12 are the primary witnesses to the resurrection. They are, not, they are not the only ones. Paul speaks clearly of more than 500 persons to whom Jesus appeared on a single occasion and also of James and all the apostles. So we have in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, 8 and in Acts 1, 11, 1, 22, you have these appearances of the Lord. Okay, we're um, the ascension before the ascension and, and to 500 brethren at once. Now, it's interesting because the church tells us something here, and this is so very important. Paragraph 643. 
Given all these testimonies, Christ's resurrection cannot be interpreted as something outside the physical order. In other words, it wasn't just a mirage or something was made up in someone's mind. It was a physical reality. And it is impossible not to acknowledge it as a historical fact. It is clear from the facts that the disciples' faith was drastically put to the test by their master's passion and death on the cross, which he had foretold. Their faith is put to the test. The, the cross was a great scandal. The shock provoked by the passion was so great that at least some of the disciples did not at once believe in the news of the resurrection. Remember? Far from showing us a community seized by a mystical exaltation, the gospel presents us with disciples demoralized, looking downcast, looking sad, and frightened. They're locked in the room. They're scared. For they had not believed the holy women returning from the tomb and had regarded their words as idle tales. You know, women, they're always seeing visions. They're always making things up. The apostles didn't believe them. The apostles weren't waiting for the resurrection. They were more likely waiting for the soldiers in the Sanhedrin to come and drag them away and kill them, as they had done to Jesus. And they're frightened, and they're in a locked room. When Jesus reveals himself to the eleven on Easter evening, he upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So the women bear him testimony and, you know, and, and even after all of this, you know, remember Thomas isn't there on that first night. You have Thomas a whole, he goes a whole week before he comes to faith. So no, this is a real event. Jesus physically rose from the dead and the apostles really saw him. They're really witnesses. They're eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Paragraph 644. Even when faced with the reality of the risen Jesus, the disciples are still doubtful. So impossible did this thing seem. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Remember when he appears in their midst, he's fright they're frightened. They are frightened by his presence. Ah, it's a ghost. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He has to say it more than once. In their joy, they were still disbelieving and still wondering, how could this be? They don't understand. They've never experienced anything like this before. Thomas will also experience the test of doubt. And St. Matthew relates that during the risen Lord's appearance in Galilee, some doubted. Remember, look at John 20, 24 through 27 and Matthew 28, 17. While some doubted, there's still, it's like, how can this be? What is this? This is, is my mind playing tricks on me? Or, you know, am I being fooled? Therefore, the hypothesis that the resurrection was produced by the apostles' faith or credulity will not hold up. No, it wasn't produced by their faith or they're wanting it to happen. They weren't expecting this. On the contrary, their faith in the resurrection was born under the action of divine grace from their direct experience of the reality of the risen Jesus. Remember when they said he's a ghost and he said, look, touch me. See that a ghost does not have flesh and blood as I do. And they're still like, ah, ah, ah. and he says, look, give me something to eat. 
and he eats some fish with them. I'm not a ghost. It's really, it is I, is the Lord. I, I rose from the dead. Yes, I died. I really died, but I'm not going to remain dead. I died once for all. I will never die again. No one can ever kill me again. I surrendered my life. I know they didn't take it from me. I surrendered it freely and I surrendered it freely so I could take it up again. I told you that. And even though you don't understand, I'm going to work with you. You're going to believe. And he gives them the gift of faith, the gift of faith so that they can believe in the resurrection. You know, that God exists is not an article of faith. And I I can't say this enough or often enough. That God exists is a self-evident truth. Read the book of Romans. Read the letter to the Romans where Paul talks about the fact that all the pagans could have known of the existence of God from the good things he's created. From his creation, we can know who God is, that he is beautiful, that he is good, that he is ordered, that he is loving. We can know all of that. Now, we can't know him in his own personal, interpersonal life. We can't know that he's a trinity of persons unless he reveals that. There are certain things about God that have to be revealed. But that God exists, that's not an article of faith. It's a self-evident truth. And we're all called to seek the truth, the full truth and nothing but the truth. And of course, God is truth. So we want to seek him. And the resurrection shows us, it shows us that Jesus, it's the, the crowning proof of his divinity because he is raised from the dead. Now, yes, he was, he had a human body, a human soul, a human will, and he really died. His human body and soul really separated, causing his death. And the divinity, his divine, the divine son remained united to that human soul separated from the human body. Does God know what it means to die? Has God ever experienced death? The second person of the Blessed Trinity experienced death. Now, he didn't die. He's God. But he experienced that separation of body and soul. He experienced what it means for human beings to die. And remember, God didn't make death. Death came as a punishment for sin. God made us. He gave us a gift, a preternatural gift that didn't belong to us by nature, that we would never have to die if we would obey him. But we didn't obey him. Adam and Eve sinned. And so we lost the preternatural gifts. And so as a consequence, suffering, illness, confusion, disorder, death come into the world. So we can offer all of these things in union with Jesus in obedience to the Father's will. Jesus died to save us from sin. And he rose from the dead to give us new life. The church teaches us. So it's a real reality, okay? Jesus really rose from the dead. And it's not Jesus, his human nature didn't raise himself from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So it's you know, God's goodness and and he's showing us that death isn't the end of the story. There's more to it. There's life after death. And that life is, we're called to live in union with God. So it wasn't cleverly concocted myths. It wasn't the apostles just expecting this and because they expected it, it happened. And oh my, you know, there we go. See, 
how many things do we expect firmly in our life that don't ever happen? You know, a lot of things, it's, a lot of times we worry about things that might happen and then they never do. And we're like, well, what did we worry so much for? You know, we were wasting our time worrying in a sense. So the, the resurrection is a real historical event. It really happened. And if you don't believe, you know, you can ask God for faith. Faith is a gift and you can ask for it. If you don't think you believe or you don't believe enough, then ask God for the gift of faith or for more faith. And you can ask God for more faith every day. You know, my God, I believe. Help my unbelief. My God, I hope in you. Increase my hope. I trust in you. Strengthen my trust. I love you. Let me love you more and more. Give me a firm faith, a sure hope, perfect trust, and, and perfect love. Because God is worthy God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our faith, our hope, and our love, our charity. We'll be back. Don't go away. The most important thing about our faith here, the resurrection from the dead, the greatest feast of the church that we continue to celebrate for eight weeks, not just eight days, the Easter season. We're talking about He is Risen on Bible with the Barbers this April 29th, 2000. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers. Terry's actually um, going to be giving a talk at a men's conference, so he's not here today, but um, I'm here. And so... Um, so Jesus, what was the condition of his risen humanity? Okay, remember, he, he shares a meal with his apostles. He touches them. They can touch him. Okay, he has direct contact with them. And he invites them by this way to recognize that he's not a ghost. He's not a ghost at all. He's really, you know, risen from the dead. It's really him. But the, the, the risen body, um, he appears to them. It's the same body that had been tortured and crucified. And it still bears the traces of his passion. Remember to Thomas? Thomas said, well, I won't believe it until I can put my, hand, my finger into the um, nail marks in his hands and put my hand into his side. So when Jesus comes back and appears and Thomas is there, he says, Thomas, put your finger in my hand and put your hand in my side and stop, stop being unbelieving. Give up your unbelief and believe. And so, yeah, he's, it really is the same body. But it has the properties of a glorious body. Now, what is that? The properties of a glorious, it's not limited by time and space. And it's able to be present how and when he wills. He doesn't have the limitations of time and space. Christ's humanity can no longer be confined to earth and belongs henceforth only to the Father's divine realm, to heaven. St. Paul will call him the man of heaven. For this reason, too, the risen Jesus enjoys the sovereign freedom of appearing as he wishes in the guise of a gardener or in other forms familiar to his disciples, precisely to awaken in them faith. And if you, you can look at um, Mark sixteen twelve and John twenty fourteen through 16 and 21, 4 and 7, the different ways he appeared. So Christ's resurrection, he's not a, a return to earthly life, okay? Remember, he rose 
Jairus' daughter from the dead. He rose the widow's son of name, and he rose Lazarus from the dead. But they returned to earthly life, and they eventually would have to die again. Okay? That's not what his, this isn't the resurrection. <clears throat> his resurrection, although those events, those rising of human beings from the dead were miraculous, but the persons miraculously raised would have to die. They have an ordinary earthly life, and they're going to have to die. Jesus's resurrection is essentially different. In his risen body, he passes from the state of death to another life beyond time and space. Okay? There is life beyond what we experience here on this earth. There's life with God in heaven. And God existed first. He made us. He existed from all eternity. Outside of time, he created time. At Jesus' resurrection, his body is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He shares the divine life in his glorious state. And then St. Paul calls him the man of heaven. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 50. So the resurrection is a transcendent event. And the Easter vigil, we sent the exaltavit, exultet, exultet, which alone observes, O truly blessed night, right, that knows the time and the hour when Christ rose from the realm of the dead. O truly blessed night. It's only the night that knows. No one was an eyewitness to Christ's resurrection. <clears throat> Not even the guards at the tomb. There was no eyewitness to Christ's resurrection. And no evangelist describes it. It's not His actual resurrection is not described in the Gospels. No one can say how it came about physically. Still less was its innermost essence, his passing over to another life. This is such a great mystery because he's passing to a new realm. He's, he's going into eternity, but he can still appear to us who are in time in order to give us, to help us to have faith. Perceptible to the senses. He can, we can see him still. We could, if, he, if he desires, we could still see him. Although the resurrection was an historical event, that could be verified by the sign of the empty tomb and by the reality of the apostles' encounter with the risen Christ, still it remains at the very heart of the mystery of faith as something that transcends and surpasses history. This is God intervening in history. Only God could do this, and he does it. This is why the risen Christ does not reveal himself to the world, but to his disciples. To those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Acts 13, 31, and compare John 14, 22. So what does it all mean? Jesus rose from the dead. Well, in his letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul had something to say about that. As a matter of fact, he didn't say, he did it in the negative. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. 
Christ really rose from the dead. The resurrection above all constitutes the confirmation of all Christ's works and teachings. All truths, even those most inaccessible to human reason, find their justification if Christ by his resurrection has given the definitive proof of his divine authority, which he had promised. Jesus claimed divine authority when he was on earth. He forgave sins. He raised the dead. He cured the lepers. He cured men, a man born blind. He cured the lame and the sick. And he claimed to be God. And the resurrection is the proof of his Godhead, that he raised himself from the dead. Not that his humanity raised itself from the dead, but that the second person of the Blessed Trinity, remember, Jesus is only one person. He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He took to himself a human nature, not a human person. He doesn't have a split personality. He's a divine person who united to himself a human nature. And after that human nature dies, he raises that human nature back to life as the proof of his divinity. Christ's resurrection is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament and of Jesus during his earthly life. And it says to compare, look at Matthew 28, 6, Mark 16, 7, Luke 24, 6, and 7, and then 26 through 27, and 44 through 48. The, the phrase, in accordance with the scripture, which is in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and 4, and in the Nicene Creed, indicates that Christ's resurrection fulfilled these predictions. All that was foretold about him. Remember the apostles on the road to Amos. Don't you wish sometimes you could be in on that conversation? Where he opens up the scripture to them. And he shows them how he fulfilled all of the, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament. Remember they were downcast. Why? Because, well, we thought he was the one who was going to, you know, the Messiah, save Israel. And now he... he and he died. They killed him. And now on the third day, these women come with their, their stories, their women's stories about him rising from the, seeing an angel. They didn't see him. They saw an angel, an angel who told him he's risen. And it's like, we've had it. We're done. We're leaving. And then Jesus opens the scripture to them. And he said, did not the Christ have to suffer before he entered into his glory? It was all prophesied. There it was. And yes, the church has kept those realities alive for us. That's why we go to the church to understand how scripture should be interpreted. That's why I use the catechism of the Catholic Church. Even our pastor here, Father Glenn Batten, who happens to be a convert from, well, he, he, I, think he was a, I think he was a Calvary Chapel um, minister, and then he was a, um, Episcopal, I mean, a, a Presbyterian minister, and then he was an Episcopalian priest, and now he's a Roman Catholic priest. But while he was still Protestant, he was using the Catechism of the Catholic Church for his commentary on Scripture. Because it, it's so rooted in Scripture. The, che the teachings of the Church are rooted in Scripture. They don't contradict Scripture. But not everything that Jesus did and said and taught was written down. And so there's the living tradition of the Church, which the Church keeps alive in her liturgy. So the resurrection of the crucified one shows that he was truly, I am, the son of God and God himself. So St. Paul could declare to the Jews 
What God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. And that's a quote from Acts the Apostles 13, 32 through 34, and the psalm is Psalm 2, 7. Christ's resurrection is closely linked to the incarnation of God's Son, and it is its fulfillment in accordance with God's eternal plan. So by his death, Jesus liberates us from sin. And by his rising to life, he gives us the promise of new life, a life beyond the grave, a life beyond the sufferings of this world. All of our sufferings can be united to Jesus. And St. Paul would say, I consider the sufferings of the moment as nothing in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in me. He had an inkling. God had given him mystical experiences. And so he could tell us, I can faithfully promise you that there is a life beyond your suffering, that your suffering isn't meaningless. It's not absurd. You aren't being tortured. You are being brought into glory. And all of this suffering will be an eternal weight of glory for you because God isn't stingy. He shares with us his glory in heaven. He shares with us his very life, even here on earth. We can participate in the life of the Trinity. By baptism, we are baptized into the, the Trinity the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we receive the life of God into our soul. We are an alleluia people. We are resurrected. We are an Easter people. Alleluia is our song. We look forward to the resurrection, so we're not afraid of death. I hear the music. We'll be right back with more. Don't go away. As we look at the resurrection and its meaning for us. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Thank you again for joining us on Bible with the Barbers. Thank you to all of our benefactors um, in any manner, shape, or form that you help us, all of our volunteers, all the radio stations that pick us up, those who support us financially, those who support us with their prayers, those who support us with their sufferings, um, and those who volunteer to help us, and also all the, um, all the little people that we don't see who are helping and, and uh, furthering this work, God's work. We want to rejoice in the resurrection of the Lord from the dead, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is what we're called to, this newness of life, this victory over death, Death was caused by sin, right? And so we receive a new participation in grace through Christ. And it brings about our, our adoption. We become children of God. We really are sons and daughters of God. Okay, we're his children, and he loves us. So finally, Christ's resurrection and the risen Christ himself is the principle and source of our future resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For in Adam all died, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You recognize that scripture passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. The risen Christ lives in the hearts of his faithful while they await that fulfillment. In Christ, Christians have tasted the powers of the age to come, <clears throat> Hebrews 6, 5. And their lives are swept up with Christ, up by Christ into the heart of the divine life so that they may live no longer for themselves, but for him 
who for their sake died and was raised from the dead. 2 Corinthians 5.15 and Colossians 3, 1-3. So we live in a newness of life. We live in a newness of life that is taken up into the life of God. And that's why, you know, this, this, um, there's a bumper sticker that was uh, kind of popular. People used to, Christians aren't different, they're just forgiven. No, Christians are different because they are forgiven. Because we are forgiven, because our sins have been forgiven, we are different and we no longer live in sin. This is why, you know, sometimes Catholics and Christians will do things um, that they think they'll compromise kind of with the world. You know, it's like, well, I want to make this movie and it's okay if I use a little bad language here or there, or if I, you know, um, have a few scenes that are a little suggestive, as long as my overall message is okay. Well, there's a difficulty with that. You see, we're called to live as Christ lived. Christ didn't make dirty jokes. He didn't uh, use bad language. He didn't um, say things suggestive. Okay. He taught the truth, taught the truth, taught the truth. And if we can't teach the truth, even in our filmmaking, even in our entertainments that we, we do, you, you, you know, when St. Augustine told the Christians of the, of the early church not to go to the entertainments of the pagans, don't go. And, and again, and I would reiterate this, you know, don't go. And even if it's a movie made by Catholics who claim to be Catholic, and yet they throw in bad language or they throw in, um, it, you know, when you read the Confessions of St. Augustine, he doesn't go into detail about his sin. He names the sin and he renounces it. He's been converted now to Christ. And remember what St. Paul says in one of his letters, they only the good things men need to hear, things that will truly build them up in the Lord. Remember, God is truth, and we aren't supposed to bear false witness to our neighbor. We're supposed to, we shouldn't swear falsely, and we should perform, you know, our, fulfill our oaths. If we make an oath, we have to fulfill it. So, you know, the Eighth Commandment forbids us to, to, to bear false witness. So if we are using um, sinful means to try and get across a message that's supposedly good, I'm sorry, but you, we've, we've distorted the message in, in the telling of it, okay? We need, if we're going to make Christian movies, if we're going to make movies, they have to be movies that uplift people. And if we're talking about people who've lived a sinful life, we have to do it in such a way that we aren't drawing other people into sin, like St. Augustine's Confessions. And so the Eighth Commandment forbids us to lie. Because God is always faithful and he is truth. And there is no dishonesty in God. There's no duplicity in God at all. Okay? That we are called to live a life of truth. Truth is uprightness in human action and speech. It's called truthfulness, sincerity, or candor. Truth or truthfulness is the virtue which consists in showing oneself true in deeds, truthful in words, and in guarding against duplicity dissimulation, and hypocrisy. So if we try to compromise with the world and say, well, I can make this movie and I can put a few bad words in it or whatever. No, that's duplicity. We can't do that. We want to live as true children of the light. And as true children of the light, we don't compromise ourselves. Okay? And we, we can't indulge in the entertainment industry, if the entertainment industry is showing uh, fornication and adultery on the screen, if the entertainment industry is um, showing 
scenes where there's a lot of suggestive talk or showing scenes where there's a lot of bad language. You know, the saint said to control, you know, St. James, he tells us to control our tongue. It's a small member, <laughs> but if you put a bit in the horse, in the mouth of a horse, you can control the horse, right? Well, if we don't control our tongues, they'll lead us astray. So if we start using bad language, the saint said it this way, you can tie a bird down with a chain and he won't be able to fly. Or you can take a string and tie him down and he still can't fly because he's tied down with a string. So the chain represents mortal sin. It doesn't take mortal sin to keep us from flying up to God, as it were, to the fullness of the truths that God wants to reveal to us. All it takes is that little string of venial sins, of carelessness in our speech, carelessness in our actions, carelessness in what we take in through our eyes or through our ears. No, we need to guard our senses so that our senses become sanctified and become glorified, become praises of the glory of God. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead to the praise of the glory of God the Father, we too are supposed to live to the praise of the glory of God the Father. This is what we're called to. So we want to live truth. And don't go to movies or entertainments that compromise the faith. Even if the movie is supposedly about the faith in some way, if it's compromising the faith, don't go to it. We don't need to be entertained. We need to live life to the full. And we need to really, really live life in union with God. And it's an arduous task. And it takes a constant effort. We have to overcome, you know, maybe as a young person, we didn't realize this. And we went to some movies that were questionable and not understanding fully that all of those things imprint themselves on our mind and in our body. And then later on in life, we're going to have to fight the tendency to these sins that we, we witnessed on the screen. And by the way, you know, there are nine ways of participating in someone else's sin. And you can't be watching a movie. I remember once a young woman who was rather devout, prayed the rosary every day, went to mass frequently, I think daily, and, and um, was talking about a movie. And I said, well, what was the movie rated? And, and she said, oh, the movie was a good movie. What was it rated? She wouldn't tell me what it was rated. It was a good movie. So finally, I, I looked it up. I looked up the title of the movie, and I looked up the rating. Well, it was rated R. <laughs> and she was saying it was a good movie. And she was said, oh, well, there's no sex in it, so it's a good movie. I was like, wait a minute. Is the only sin, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery or thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife? What about the other eight? <laughs> you know? So in the movie, the message of the movie was your ends justifies your means. And, you know, I think this is a, a message that a lot of people believe. Well, I have a good intention, so it doesn't matter how I get there. That's not true. We can never do an evil so that good will come of it. We're supposed to be a living image of Christ. We're supposed to be doing good. We're supposed to be allowing God to live in and through us, to work in and through us, and to guide everything in our life. So you can't do evil so that good will come of it. And so the movie had violence in it. And um, it, was, it was saying that, you know, individual human beings could take the law into their own hands and that was all justified because they had a good intention. No, your ends doesn't justify your means. That's a lie. That your ends justifies your means is a lie. It doesn't. And you can't do an evil so that good will come of it. So if you make a movie and you put bad language in the movie, that's degrading to the human person, so that's bad, and you put suggestive um, 
scenes in it where or scenes where people are talking suggestively. Well, you know, fornication and adultery don't have to be acted out. Remember, say our Lord said, a man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You don't have to act it out. So just the very fact that you're thinking about it and watching it being suggested to you, that's a near occasion of sin. No, you can't put that in a movie. You have to find another way. You know, and I'm not in touch with movie producers or whatever, but if anybody out there listening is, let them know. The Catholic movie producers, the Catholic actors, the Catholic directors, if there are any, you need to have Christ be the one who guides what you put on the screen. Because if you lead others into sin, you know, by the way, that's another way of participating in other people's sin is leading them into sin. And so don't put sinful things on the screen. You can portray discreetly what's going on in such a way that everybody knows, but they're not drawn into the sin. And there is a difference. There is a difference. And um, I just... We live in a world where we think our ends justifies our means, that any means we use is fine as long as we have a good intention, and that's just not true. We can't do evil so that good will come of it. We have to live the truth. We are a resurrection people. We are looking forward to life with God for all eternity, but we're supposed to begin to live that life right here and now. We're supposed to be living in union with God moment by moment, day by day, always constantly in the presence of God, being aware that anything that degrades the human person is offensive to God. Anything that degrades the human person is offensive to God. It offends God when we degrade each other and degrade ourselves. We are made in God's image as persons to be loved, and we are loved by God, so much so that God sent his only son to die on the cross and to raise from the dead, to, to free us from sin and to give us the promise of eternal life. So let's live in the freedom of the children of God, in union with God, all the days of our life. And let's live as St. Paul said, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Let's pray for that grace that, Lord, live in me, live in me, so that your work will be accomplished in and through me. The Lord made us, he made us for himself, and he desires us to live in union with him. So let's live that. Let's live our resurrected life in union with Jesus Christ. And let us pray for the grace every day of final perseverance. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers, April 29th, 2022. Um, let other people know about us. Please let your friends and family share this with them. If people want a Bible study, tell them they've got it here and they don't even have to pay. And thank you for all of you who support us with your donations, your prayers, your sacrifices, and the radio stations that pick us up. And thank you for all of the volunteers who help us. And keep us in prayer, and remember the women's that family life uh, family conference, marriage and family conference, Saturday, May seventh. That's a week from tomorrow. Sign up, please. Go online now today and sign up. Thank you.